Well, Jordan, you want to kick things off? Uh, I know we're all excited about the conversation. We've had a ton of buzz about specialty crops and how folks can get involved. Uh, what we see for the future, the whole program we're trying to run here is really helping farm families kind of navigate 10, 20 years out. Uh, you know, because we found the one common thread for a lot of folks is, is leaving the farm to the next generation. And, and with all the change and technological change that we're seeing from uh, everything from the consumer demand side all the way down to the infrastructure side and how things are going to swing, we're, we're just trying to paint a little better picture, a roadmap for folks, uh, maybe how to pivot. You know, I mean, uh, we, we kind of dumb it down on our end. I always told Jordan, I said, it's like if I owned a bunch of gas stations and I was going to leave them to my kids, you know, what the hell am I going to tell them right here? You know, do we convert to plug in electric or what, you know, what do we do? I got a bunch of buddies with a lot of gas stations too. And I'm like, I don't know what you, what you tell your kids or how do you play that out? But I, I think agriculture is going to change dramatically as well. And, you know, the folks at Benson Hill and some of the other folks are going to make some, some big splashes uh, from things they do with feed to, to consumer stables to, to everything else. So I, you know, how we try to transition our farms and, just maybe take baby steps in the right direction. So that's why we're trying to have folks on uh, like you guys that, that know a lot more than I know and uh, and kind of pick your brains on where you're headed and, and what you're seeing in the space. So I know Jordan's fielded some questions and Todd has from some folks that have written in and you guys want to kind of kick it off a little bit, Jordan, everyone can, when it get, you know, when, when we ask you something, go ahead and tell us where you're with and, and what you got going on. And, and uh, that'd be great. And I sure appreciate it in advance. So Jordan, go ahead. Yeah, I guess probably the first question um, we got on this is uh, I just I think there's a lot of guys asking on this plant based market, as well as uh, the non GMO foods, um, foods creating sustainability, all that kind of what Chipotle is doing. I guess how how big is the market right now and where do we see this market heading in the future? Like how big can this market get? Yeah, uh, I'm happy to. Off. Yeah, I'm happy to. So, you know, when we look at the, the plant-based category, um, you, you can look at it sliced and diced a few ways. You know, you've got alter, quote unquote alternative dairy, uh, alternative meat, you've got plant-based. And I would say that there, a lot of the market research out there is um, assimilating some of those things. And then in some other cases, breaking those apart. One of the common reports we've referenced is the global alternative plant-based meat market. Uh, which was published, I want to say in 2019. And it predicts that we'll go from about a $14 billion current category globally to about $140 billion category globally. The way that that estimate is derived is really uh, an absorption of about 10% of the animal protein market. So, you know, $1.4 trillion animal projected animal meat market by the end of this decade, uh, assuming 10% capture of that, uh, you know, then, then that's where they're arriving at this 140 billion. What I would tell you though, is that the global animal protein market continues to grow at a pace where it will actually continue no matter what to grow, despite the fact that you're seeing penetrance of alternative plant-based meat products into the category. So the, the, the middle class, as we've all talked about, is burgeoning globally, especially in the, in the developing world. And as a result of that, 
you're seeing a demand for, it's not just alternative plant-based burgers or what have you, but it's also still for more fish and pork and, uh, and, and meat generally. You know, I want to add some things to my, what Matt is just saying, and I want to, you know, I want to maybe basically, basically try to bring another perspective of what we are just facing. Uh, it's clear that the meat industry is, is going to sustain and I can say even going to grow because as already Matt said, people are going to continue to consume meat and in developing countries, everybody is now going to just buying their first meat dish. So it's not even uh, that it's going to disappear, it's going to grow. But the consequences of that, that probably meat as a, let's call it as an ingredient in general, meat and dairies and the other uh, things that is based on animal uh, uh, product, price is going to go up. That's probably going to impact the grain industry. The price of grains is going to go up. And therefore, probably there is a lack of uh, resources to support the entire universe, the entire, the entire uh, globes, and therefore, what we believe will happen that the demand of solutions to feed the population globally is going to be an essential uh, factor for us and for other people. So it's not about uh, uh, somebody would like to sustain the world and to eat beyond meat, which is an amazing solution. It's about an essential, it's a necessity to make sure that there is going to be new resources to feed the entire uh, people in, in the world. So it's, it's, I'm, I'm, we are seeing it not as uh, something that is a trend. We see it as a, a way for uh, making sure that we can feed the entire people in the world. Um, and therefore, by the way, Econom is not working only on pea and soy. We are working in other crops because it's not only about growing pea in North America and soy in the Midwest. It's also about growing cowpea in Africa, for example. What about on like the organic side of things, Steve? Aren't you doing a lot on that side? Yes, Jordan. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> we're the only organic rice supplier and processor for Chipotle Mexican Grill. Uh, we are approximately selling about two to three percent of all the rice that they buy. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we're working towards five percent right now. Uh, they are buying in excess of uh, about 120 million pounds of rice a year for all of their Chipotle stores. And I may be off some there. Um, the thing that uh, caught their eye was approaching them uh, through a contact and flying to Denver, Colorado when they were still headquartered there and sharing with them what we're doing on the farm, uh, what our rice tastes like. We took them samples of rice and we walked away, Kay and I, my wife, uh, we walked away from about a 20 minute meeting in Denver and really didn't know what they were thinking. And then two weeks later, we get a phone call from a lady that really was the backbone for us, <clears throat> inviting us to start making deliveries to the Chipotle in Little Rock, Arkansas, which we gladly accepted. And that's how we got started. That fall, the, the whole executive team uh, flew to Kennett, Missouri. Uh, we picked them up, uh, we put them on the combine. We were harvesting rice at the time. We even let them drive the combine with uh, a helper in there. Uh, 
it was just a, a great day. We had a barbecue fest at our home, but the, the, uh, the thing that really got them was Kay's carrot cake. Uh, they, they talked about it forever and wanted us to FedEx some more carrot cake to Denver, Colorado. But uh, we are presently in about 60 restaurants. Uh, we are requesting 10 to 15 more right now. Uh, they are growing leaps and bounds right now and the company is doing better than ever. Uh, we're in talks right now uh, to continue our relationship with transitional organic rice, which, which is a program where uh, a farm that is in transition to become organic uh, is called transition. Uh, and we're, which they were gladly to accept that. And we believe all of the Chipotles in St. Louis are using uh, our transitional rice. Uh, we pay the farmer a premium over the river price for transitional of about $7.50 a bushel. And the organic price is around $10 a bushel. Uh, <clears throat> that's one example. Uh, that's, that's a, Chipotle is a great customer. In fact, we had a conference call with them yesterday. Uh, another great customer is Blue Apron. Uh, the, I call it the online make a meal company. Uh, <clears throat> I looked out on, on that one also by, I was Googling some stuff and I noticed uh, this was years ago, a company was starting to sell meals online. I couldn't believe it. Uh, I couldn't believe anybody would pay for a complete meal that they had to cook uh, when they got the package at home. And I luckily called the right number and the, the, the head of procurement answered the phone. And within two weeks, we were selling Blue Apron conventional rice, uh, brown rice. Uh, this is uh, another interesting story. Um, they, they advertised a cook time of like 25 to 30 minutes and they cooked our brown rice and it was 35 to 40. And they called me back and said, we can't use it. The cook time's too much. And so that night I thought about how we, how are we going to do this? And so we figured out a way to shave off some of the rice brand off of the rice, which is the brown color on the rice kernel. And that's what extends the cooking time. We call it 29% brown which is uh, the number that we got on our digital white whiteness meter that we use during the processing work. Um, some other end users right now, um, Whole Foods, uh, many, many grocery stores across America. Uh, and <clears throat> that's how we've been marketing ever since we got started and we're still continuing to do so. Uh, we think that there still is a future uh, for organic farming. Uh, it, it needs a lot of help right now, especially with weed control, of which we're working on. Um, there's also the issue of dicamba uh, floating around in the atmosphere. Uh, that's not helping organic farming at all. And so we're working on that too. There you go. You want to... Uh... I guess bouncing off that, you kind of want to give everybody our thoughts on 
where the space might be heading, Dad, you can maybe talk about the uh, Chipotle concert Kennedy attended and I guess on a consumer side where, where they're trying to push this thing. Yeah, I, you know, I just think, you know, and Matt will agree, I know because we've talked about it a ton and I know we're focused on the space. And, and a lot of our farmers, you know, I think everyone's kind of wired to think literally out the rearview mirror. And you want to you want to believe things are going to continue forward like like they happened in the past. You know, shit, you've 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 played that hand before. You've you've had those cards in your hands. So you kind of hoping the game's going to be played similarly. And uh, I, don't, I just don't see that happening as we move forward. We used to I used to quiz a lot of the young kids in my office every week. I would just say to them, you know, what'd you do over the weekend? What'd you guys do? And I, I'd try to hire young people to to keep me not getting stuck or trapped in, in, in my comfort zone or my linear thinking and out of the rear view mirror, so to speak. So one time I asked them what the hell they all did that weekend. And everybody said, Oh man, Chipotle had this huge concert in Kansas city. And I knew it was packed because my wife and I have some buildings downtown and uh, there was nowhere to park. And I, I said, really? And they said, Oh yeah, I brought in all these cool bands from the West coast out of Seattle and California and you know, they had them all in and, and they said it was free. And I said, free? I know Chipotle do a free, you know, free concert. And then they said, well, yeah, I said, we didn't have to do anything. We just went through these three stations and, and then they let us in, you know, they, and I said, well, back up. What are these three stations? You know, and, and the first one was about, you know, organic products that they use and how non, uh, you know, how GMO crops are really bad for you. The next one was kind of how the hog population was, you know, what, what was happening with hogs was kind of bad for, for you. And then they gave you a big burrito at the end and sent you off to uh, watch the concert. And I'm like, I, I see, you know, how consumers now are going to be influenced and, and how our younger consumers are going to make a lot of really different choices than our baby boomers did. Uh, the boomers put a lot of things in place. If you think about it, fast foods from Hardee's to mcdonald's you know to big box stores like sam's well now these younger millennials and z's are are shifting and changing a lot of that and i think you know matt at benson hill sees the the light i i i see gill sees the light and obviously you know steve's transitioned his business to try and cater to some of those consumer uh choices that are going to shift so I, I think it's interesting to hear steve you know your perspective on how you've pivoted and and and, and targeted and seen the lights. I think Matt's doing the same. I know we, we help, uh, you know, with non-GMO beans, we help, sorry about that guys. We help with non-GMO beans uh, for Benson and some of the things they've got going. I know Matt, you guys just bought that uh, crush facility. And I, you know, I think we're seeing more and more of that uh, play out. And I did, I just think it's interesting as can be. I was talking with uh Oh, Matt, you know, I'm a Cronin, uh, Walter Cronin from over at uh, Green Plains. And he was a CFO over at Green Plains there for a while. But we were talking and he's all on, you know, he's on the Benson bandwagon. And we were just talking about, and you guys will get a kick out. You know, he was talking uh, salmon and, and just he's, uh, you know, on the kick on the salmon. And, and, and I'm sure Gil will attest just a huge demand for salmon. But we think once these consumers you know, see how the meal is that they're eating, the meals consumption that the salmon are eating. And as they, you know, excrete all the uh, meal that's being consumed right now, I think there's a problem there. We think there's some solutions or some things that'll be done on the feed side of things with 
with some companies that you'll start feeding the salmon in a different way. And I think there's going to be things created that a lot of global feed, like Gil's saying, as we see meat demand rise, I think the feed that we feed the livestock is also going to change. And I think you guys could probably get into some of that as well. And I, I, I think as producers or growers, I think there's going to just be insane opportunity in, in places where we can pivot like Steve has done or showing us ways to do that, uh, hooking up with the Benson Hill, uh, like Steve has hooked up direct with Chipotle or, or Blue Apron. And like Gil's saying, the demand for meat. I, I just think we're going to really need to be open-minded though and not just not get blocked down on our linear thinking out of the rearview mirror. And so I think we're going to have to start with small steps. Steve, how, one question, Steve, how did you start? Did you guys transition just a small amount of your farm early with Chipotle or did you just dive in head first? We actually started organic cotton farming uh, in 1993. Uh, we, we were invited to the University of Missouri Delta Center in Portageville for a meeting with a company called Esprit. It was a female cotton clothing company and they were looking for farmers in West Tennessee, Northeast Arkansas, Southeast Missouri to grow organic cotton. And at that time, farming was in the doldrums, bad. This was a year or two before Roundup Ready Cotton came out. And uh, I sat in the meeting, I never heard of organic cotton. Uh, we, had eaten, we had bought some organic stuff in Memphis before, but when they said the price per pound was going to be a dollar and I was getting 35 cents at the time, I was in. Uh, and we later joined up with a nonprofit uh, called the Sustainable Cotton Project in Fresno and uh, were the group responsible for convincing Yvonne Chouinard, the founder of Patagonia, to start buying organic cotton. Uh, into the deal, we found out that there was actually more demand for organic cotton seed than for the lint, because the demand for organic milk with Horizon and Organic Valley, all of that was starting up at the same time too. We had a tornado in, uh, 2006, an EF4, maybe a five, and we were wiped out, uh, and the family cotton gin went with it. Uh, luckily, a few months prior to that tornado, we were talking to an Arkansas rice mill about growing organic rice production, and so I called him, and I said, I told him what had happened, and he said, let's do 80 acres, and so we did in 2006, that's actually when we started, was uh, back in 2006. Uh, one thing I do want to mention, uh, the, I think the future, I think the future trend will be climate-friendly crops. Uh, we're looking at this very strongly right now. Um, these are crops that are sequestering carbon at a tremendous amount. And I think that we're gonna find out that the millennial consumer group is going to strongly favor that above organic and all these other sustainable things that are happening. Climate friendly would be hopefully the most sustainable 
way to farm going forward. Uh, I've got a lot of research on it, working with a company in Nashville on it, but I wanted to throw that out. Um, I think we're going to see that change start occurring pretty soon. If you don't mind, I mean, one, one thing to piggyback on that for a second, uh, Steve's comment about carbon and it playing a role, you know, you've got, you've definitely got folks in the consumer level willing to pay a green premium for a lot of the products that are out today, right? Where, I mean, there, there's, there's a, there's a material planetary benefit, environmental benefit by virtue of it. Um, where I think we're, we're so far missing though, the boat, and this, this is going to happen. Um, it's, it's really a matter of when, not if, is how then as well do we create um, or help enable a carbon economy whereby we're passing that value accretion back to the grower. So if the farmer can, can in, in a future state, um, be paid as well for the carbon sequestration property and not necessarily just the qualitative output of the crop, then I think it creates a, another stack of, of value for sharing. And, and, and I think thematically, I mean, Kevin, to your point earlier, right, whether it's organic or it's um, specialty non-GMO or it's um, feed inputs for salmon or salmonoids or it's you know, differentiated feed inputs for poultry, all of these things engender themselves in just broad stroke, right, is the decommoditization of the system. And that's where this sort of value creation and capture is happening. And it's going to take business model innovation and closed loop production systems and identity preservation practices. Um, and so they're, they're become in part, no matter what the end market is, I think investment opportunities and some of those macro trends generally you know, that have to do with blockchain and transport and storage and segregation and things that folks who have operated in these, what were previously, I would say, called specialty or niche uh, areas, but which have actually in real life scale, um, you know, there become opportunities as well to, to at, the, at the farmer level and otherwise in the value chain monetize on the demand side need in order to segregate and preserve the identity for these kinds of materials. But Gil, let me ask you this on that same line. I mean, when does that become table stakes? I mean, we, Jordan always asks, you know, looking 5, 10, 20 years down the road, when is all this green move become table stakes and it's not able to be parsed out anymore? Because Kevin talks about uh, Patagonia last in our last conference, that they're going to factor all this into the price at some point, all the carbon sequestration, all the, you know, practices you're doing. So what does that uh, look like to you, Gil? Yeah, so I, I, I basically I want to know I'm – for me, it's it's the daily work because we are meeting farmers from uh, Saskatchewan in Canada on our Yellow Pea program down to North Dakota, uh, Midwest, and even uh, Oklahoma and uh, Texas uh, growing our sesame. So basically, economy is spread all around the U.S. I'm meeting farmers today. Okay, so for me, uh, giving them the, the future vision about carbon footprint, I apologize, doesn't work for me today. I'm not saying no, I'm just saying I'm generating non-GMO crops today. We are producing those crops today. I need to bring some economic value to the farmers we are working with because those guys have two options. They can grow the commodities. It's, you know, everybody know the practices. Everybody know how to grow GMO. 
no uh, any kind of uh, big hassles to, uh, to, do, to do those crops. And now I'm coming to those farmers, I meet them, and I'm telling them, hey, guys, you know, I have an identity preserve program. Yes, you are going to generate more revenues. And, uh, and then the story become more and more complicated. I have one problem. I need to look on the current supply chain of today and I need to find the resources, the money that I can compensate the farmer, a big chunk, not some things, you know, not a cent here and a cent there because these guys is going to work very hard to, to run this program. And I need to do it today. So for me, it's basically going downstream the supply chain and looking on where are the area where we can reduce the cost of processing. Then there is more going to be more ideas about the sustainability and the carbon footprint. Now, if I can find, because I'm basically improving the ingredient, the grain, the seeds, well, this grain, seed and grain, and at the end of the day, the ingredient will become more profitable to the end users, the food manufacturers, then I can go upstream the supply chain and start paying the farmers a chunk of out of the value that I created. And that's exactly what we are doing today. We are basically looking on the economy of the farm from the cost of the ingredient, from the cost of the ingredient. So if you can provide a seed to the farmer where you are creating a high valuable ingredient, now there is a room for each one party within the supply chain. And don't forget there are granules over there that have to run it. And there are processors over there that have to run it. But each one of them have to gain some of the value that we create to make sure that the entire supply chain is working. And that's exactly what we are doing today in sesame, in high protein, yellow pea, varieties that we are growing in Canada and definitely in ultra, in ultra soy protein varieties that we are running uh, uh, right now in the Midwest. Can I say one more thing, please? Yeah, of course. Uh, we're looking uh, at a premium price for climate friendly rice. Uh, to pay the farmer who can follow the practices and inputs that uh, a company's working on right now. We think that the public will pay, a, be glad to buy long grain brown or white rice, basmati, jasmine, whatever, short grain. If it says climate friendly on it, and they can look on the back of the bag and it will explain what climate friendly means and where they can go to a website and really learn more about it. Um, just recently, I was in Nashville. Uh, my wife was shopping and I did a one-on-one -on -one survey with a couple of managers. <clears throat> it's very interesting. And I said, if you were in Whole Foods, and there was a bag of organic rice for $4.99 for two pounds. And next to it, there was a bag that said climate friendly rice for $4.99 a bag also. I said, which one would you buy? And both managers without hesitation said, I will buy the climate friendly rice. Uh, the public is very concerned about uh, climate change, the atmosphere, the, the weather, and they really, uh, they want to see some changes. They're, I think they're really upset that there hadn't been a lot of changes as fast as possible. And look at all the corporations that are advertising, we're going to be carbon neutral by 2030, by 2040. Uh, 
it's 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 staring at us right into the face. Uh, you pay the farmer a two dollar, three dollar premium per bushel for rough rice. You process it, you package it, you put it in the store. Uh, Chipotle may be somebody interested in this and others too going forward. But they're buying a bag of rice or popcorn or whatever that states that by buying this, you are supporting the farmer that is contributing to helping the environment. Incredible marketing story. You know, very, very simple, very straightforward. And I think we're going to start seeing some of that happen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So go ahead, Matt. Go ahead. I want to hear what you have to say. Well, no, I mean, I, I think Steve hit on a key point there, right? We're introducing cost. And, um, you know, <clears throat> there's this movement to, to get to the parity, you know, an alternative plant-based products, like right? to get to the parity of, of meat. And, uh, you know, Kevin, you know this, our, our friend Carter, you know, hammers home and every talk that he gives, it's <laughs> he'd like to see the, the cost of the alternatives get down to the cost of ramen, not necessarily just the cost of meat. And uh, which I like that comparison, but, you know, the only real way to do that uh, and Gil points this out, right, is to think about the ingredient productivity at the farm level. It, the growers got to understand that they're not selling a crop anymore. They're selling a crop that's going into a specialty or a differentiated product. And that if we can concentrate the genetics uh, or improve, I should say, the genetics of the plant to at the very beginning in the ground, you know, produce the amount of protein or whatever, you know, nutritive content, amino acid profile that's desired by the, by the downstream person and, and then disintermediate or reduce the degree of processing that's required. That's an example use, of course, regenerative agriculture practices on farm, but importantly, in, in the case of our customers at the consumer packaged goods level, translate for them the data or deliver to them the data that reflect the carbon savings, the water savings um, that are a result of uh, growing a, a product that's better from the beginning in the field, you know, that, that becomes currency. And, and, and because you've taken cost out of the system, you're not just delivering currency in that value proposition, but you can actually go to the customer and deliver a product that's less expensive uh, than whatever the, the comparative product is. So the way I like to explain this when we talk to the investment community is you, by virtue of pulling processing out of the system, by virtue of, of focusing on some of the sustainability practices um, and reducing the, 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 you know, the input to output, uh, you know, reducing the, the, the degree of inputs that are required for the same or better outputs, you can create a value proposition to our customers that indeed involves, you know, non-GMO butterfly certified, domestically sourced, more better nutritive content, et cetera, less processing, here's the carbon footprint, but we can furthermore do it at lower cost and still have enough margin in the middle to go back to the grower and pay the grower more as well. And, and that's where this win-win actually has to be two-sided in the business model in order, in our opinion, to kind of get the, um, to get the scalability you know, to get the escape velocity for really significant uptake. I mean, we're doing it this year on 70,000 acres in, in soybeans um, in a fully closed loop system along the lines of what I described. We see that growing, you know, pretty materially. Um, but there's, a, I mean, there's just so much headroom, frankly, in this market yet. 
gentlemen, uh, I have to leave, and I am so sorry. I've got a pressing appointment in Jackson, Tennessee, and it's going to take me exactly this amount of time to get there at by five. And I'm, I'm sorry I'm leaving early, but I'm available. Uh, if you want to call me uh, to discuss what we're doing more, I'm more than welcome. And Matthew, I've heard a lot about what you're doing from Hallie uh, at Schaffner's down in uh, Searcy. And uh, I'm very proud of what y'all are doing. It's fantastic. Well, thank and, you, Steve. Uh, thank y'all for yeah, the opportunity. Yes, sir. I, I'm sorry I got to go, but take care. I'll see you. In All right, buddy. All right. See you. All right. Bye. Yeah, yeah, yeah Matt, along those same lines, I, I agree with you. Um, that's why I kind of still forecast out that I think the farm's going to be blockchain. I mean, I think you're going to see farms blockchain uh, and just, you know, blockchain, meaning the underlying ledger that the cryptos are traded on or NFTs or, or any of these other things that the younger people are trading. I think you'll see the farms blockchain to a degree where you're going to know exactly what inputs they're using, what inputs they've bought, what's being put on, uh, what's not. And like you said, um, that'll all also play into the carbon footprint that's and the farming practices that are being used on those farms to create some type of, of I don't know, a premium blockchain coin, something that travels with that, mm -hmm. um, you know, with that crop. To, through to you guys and then through to the end user, I should say, to the uh, to the buyer and then to the consumer. And they'll be able to see and track that all the way back. I mean, that's what we were seeing uh, with Galen's place uh, when we toured Galen Lawrence's place down in uh, Wilson, you know, where he was saying Patagonia wanted to know to a Nat's ass, you know, where the cotton was being grown, which field, which row, what was put on it. And they were essentially blockchaining with a rudimentary or elementary type of ledger themselves. But I think you're going to see that eventually press forward to where to folks are going to be able to, to see that themselves. I don't know whether scan it with their phone or whatever, and it'll tell the whole story about, you know, how that, uh, we saw it with, Cargill, with those uh, honeysuckle white turkeys. You can take your phone and scan the barcode. It tells you what farm it was raised on, what it was fed, how, you know, what you know the whole the whole nine yards so i mean gil i suspect you're seeing similar you, you think that's going to happen no i maybe not i, I think it's yeah. it's an essential because uh, at the end of the day you know what we are always telling to our farmers is that imagine yourself that the adm kind of a factory or the cargo kind of a factory is now going to become your farm because if we have the ability to reduce the cost of processing within those facilities immediately. The factory has become the farm of the farmer. It's easy, you know, it's easy concept because any kind of genetics that we are creating, reducing the cost of the entire supply chains downstream from the farm gate. So now the farmer has become more essential in the puzzle. Unlike the conventional uh, uh, farming practices that you can find today where the farmer do not get any premium of what he is doing because anyway, is basically dumped into the, the feed industry. So uh, uh, what we are trying to change over here is basically saying that if, and we see it happening, the food industry and the ingredient industry is making, as of today, a revolution. And it's starting with protein, but it's not going to be ending protein. It's going to be follow up with other applications. Everybody's speaking about clean label. Everybody's speaking about 
natural. Everybody's speaking about non-GMO, if it's good or not, it doesn't matter. People do not want to eat GMO, that's period. Everybody's speaking about uh, no processing. So what does it mean? It means that the farmer has become an essential factor of what we are just speaking right now, because everybody is now looking back to the farm and asking to, to the farmer to give the solutions because everybody wants to make sure that once those grains is leaving the farm, they can eat them. It's a very simple equation. And if that's the case, if you ask me as a farmer, I was long time ago a farmer, but you ask me as a farmer, guys, okay, now it's my turn. You know, everybody is riding on my back, trying to, uh, to grab my, uh, you know, my value because the supply chain do not count me anymore. I'm just one farmer out of many dumping a metric of tons of soy to the crushing facility. Now I'm becoming the factory. I'm becoming the essential part to make sure that the food is going to be improved. I need to be compensated by that. And we are here to support him because we really think the more the farmer will move and make the transitions toward high quality grains, where we can create high quality ingredient, it's not about a premium of one or $2 per bushel uh, as it's the common practice in this industry. It's going to be a way more because there is going to be more room for the farmer to be compensated. And it's going to be more value because right now the value is not going to be captured within the tonnage of a, a soy bushels via Chicago board. It's going to be structured by what is the value of the ingredient, impossible food beyond meat, and any other folks is going to pay because they understand they need it for their customers. Yeah, I, I it's totally agree. It's a revolution. We are in a revolution. It's just a matter of waiting a, one or two years or maybe a bit more and it will happen. Yeah. Yeah, bouncing Matt, you yeah. agree? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, I often go back. I love to read history and things like that. I read a lot of shit. But, um, you know, just on the history channel, when they had the men that built America, and I tell folks, I'm like, you look at the early, late 1800s, early 1900s, where you had Hershey build out all of, you know, Hershey, Pennsylvania. And you, you had a lot of revolution in food and, uh, uh you know, with, uh, hell, what was it? Uh, bird's eye came out with the frozen food for the first time ever. Hershey's came out with the chalk. I feel like we're on another verge of a food revolution, like Gil's talking. And I just feel like, my goodness, there is such opportunity in a land grab that could take place if people, really dial in and, and, and try to play this out and forecast, you know, and, and really turn their turns. Like Steve, uh, the gentleman that was on here, he's obviously uh, uh, moved and positioned his farm very well with the Chipotle arrangement and some of the others. Uh, so, you know, Matt, I know you're seeing that on your end when you go to Wall Street and talk uh, for everyone who doesn't know, Benson Hill just went public uh, two weeks ago. So, and Carter was wanting to have me up there to talk to a lot of the big hedge fund guys. And Gil, what we're hearing, and Matt, you you tell me. I mean, Carter told me he's like, he's wanting to have 20 or 30 of these top hedge fund guys to our conference in Kansas City because what he's seeing and what I'm seeing are both the same thing. They all kind of see that there's going to be this revolution take place in agriculture. Uh, not, you know, with food, feed, livestock, and everything, but none of them they all feel like they don't know enough. Like they, did, they, did, they don't know the farmer. Like Gil saying, 
all of a sudden now the power's turning back to the farmer. And a lot of these Wall Street hedge fund guys don't feel like they know enough about the actual farms and the moving pieces on the farm. And they're a little squirreled up by it. I mean, some of them are calling ranchers, farmers and farmers. Ran you know, they just don't know a lot of the differences. And we're hoping somehow we can help bridge that gap. Are you seeing similar when you talk to the Wall Street guys like they, they see this coming? They're just wanting to figure out how to take, you know, where do they put their money? Where do they how do they get involved? What are you seeing, Matt? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question, because when you look at sort of the history of analyst coverage on Wall Street, it's not really designed to see across this value chain, right? I mean, there's not there's not folks, uh, maybe not that I'm aware of, you know, that have built their practice around covering this, um, you know, what is uh, inextricably linked, vertically connected chain um, that, of course, starts with the seed and the input side and the farmer. Um, that tends to be one body of, of, of groups, right, that look at and analyze that space, which, by the way, I mean, historically has included, you know, folks that analyze like the chemical industry, right? Uh, and then you and then you move across the value chain to let's all let's go all the way to the brand. That's an entirely different body of analysis, a totally different way of thinking. And and while those CPGs are peering upwards into the value chain and trying to organize an ESG strategy and um, de-risk de their supply chain and, you know, are, are thinking and talking a lot about sourcing strategies and uh, inflation as it might relate to these core inputs, they do it purely through the lens of a commodity system where the commodity system has to start, you know, I won't say breaking apart, but you have to start decommoditizing elements of it in order for them to realize those end goals. Well, that linkage, that decommoditization linkage, in my mind, at least, takes this sort of barbell view that currently is held by the street and it starts to make the middle part of that more interesting to look at. And, and as I think it will take time for people to understand how systems like this can work and more importantly, can scale and be profitable. Um, and, 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 and also I'd say that technology is the linchpin to unlock that value. As that happens, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that we'll see um, analyst coverage and, and, and um, you know, a, a, a perspective uh, research, you know, that does transcend that chain. So it's a long way of saying, I mean, I, I think the idea of having folks come back like to your meeting uh, in Kansas City and to sit down and to understand exactly where these linkages are occurring around what end markets is a great idea because it's, it's talking a new language to a group of people who are extremely influential and important to the system, especially the system that deploys capital and values assets, um, you know, but, um, but probably could use, you know, some more education and, and would appreciate a lot more understanding. Cool. Gil, what are you hearing from your investors? Yeah, so, you know, I have a nice story to tell about it, you know, uh, even more uh, kind of uh, a ridiculous even a story, but, you know, where people always forget the, the history of, uh, you know, even several years is passing and everybody uh, seeing the reality of today and already forgot what's happened a few years ago. So I can share with you, for, for example, Equinom, we decided to, uh, after we were successful in, with our system, which is, was a kind of a proof of concept for our uh, breeding technology, and we were successful because today we're already active in the sesame market, not only in the US, but in another 24 countries around the globe. It was 2015 where we decided, uh, uh, 2015, where we decided to start breeding yellow pea. 
Okay, yellow pea for protein. I'm speaking about yellow pea for protein. Uh, just to remind you, I think Beyond Meat is already maybe two years uh, making their R&D and uh, Impossible maybe three years. So, uh, and I'm now going to my board and I'm telling them, guys, I think, um, I think uh, the next things is going to be protein. And uh, uh, as we already uh, gave you uh, uh, the recognition about our technology from other crops, because it's a generic technology, um, I think uh, over there, there is going to be a big boom. And you know already that we our main goal is to uh, improve the food of everybody's uh, uh, consuming. And I think pea is going to be the next. And after that, there is going to be others. I think they want to shut down the company and they want to kick me off the, the company. They told me, you know, you are crazy. P, who is going to eat those the dummy crop a, a kind of a pea? What you're going to do out of it? Okay. And then I said, you know, you know, don't, don't, you know, don't kick me off. Give me another, uh, you know, give me another option uh, to show you the evidence. There is already pea protein in the market. There is, you know, a, one company named Rocket which they are doing pea protein and there are other companies. I'm, I'm telling you, that's going to be something uh, that probably everybody is going to look in the future. Now, nobody of my investors telling me that I made the, the wrong choice because uh, Beyond Meat is uh, successful and Benson Lin is now doing an amazing... Uh, uh, so, you know, uh, nobody is now reminding me that they, they want to kick me out of the company uh, uh, almost six years ago. And... Just today, we just received our uh, feedback from one of the largest processors uh, of our yellow pea varieties that basically are going to change a huge impact on the entire plant protein industry because for using our varieties, you don't really need to run the heavy processing capabilities that companies like uh, Rocket or ADM or Cargill is doing today. And again, the same concept. Once you don't have big folks with their huge silos and water and energy and definitely again going back to the carbon footprints because the variety is different and now is better in quality and you can use it directly to the food industry because you just mill it and then you get the protein now again the farmer is now becoming the central part out of it because if the farmer is going to grow high quality yellow pea varieties enriched in protein then you can save, I'm telling you, thousands of dollars per metric ton of yellow pea protein. Thousands of dollars. So if you are on the right spot of quality traits that the industry is appreciating and the farmer have the tools to create its quality in the farm, it's a different game. Just Gil, just so I'm hearing you right, are you basically just saying that the added premium, there's a premium obviously for the non-GMO yellow pea, there's an added premium for the ones that are essentially in the regen ag space, creating the, the positive soil health conditions, is what I heard, is what how I took it. What I'm saying that I, today, I'm not saying about the future, don't take me wrong, I'm not, you know, I, I believe that we have to improve the efficiency of the supply chain. What I'm just saying that you need to bring to the farmer the tool and the tool that Equinom is providing is the genetics that is suitable for the right application, the right food application. If you bring the farmer such a tool, the seed, yeah, and he need to provide the seeds in the highest quality. It's not any longer, 
you know, a, a big chunk of uh, soybean varieties that you pour to the feed. Nobody is really asking you how much protein you got, what is the quality, nobody really care. But if a company that understand that once they will buy Econom Genetic from a certain farmer, and then you don't need to run a very intensive processing uh, uh, requirements to extract the protein, because right now the quality of the seeds is giving you the ability just to mill it and to basically, we call it dry fractionation, to separate the protein from the starch with a very simple processing capabilities, you are saving thousands of dollars for the ingredient companies. Now, the farmer have to be part of this uh, party because he is the ones, is the key factor to contribute for that because he's the one produ producing the high quality grains, which somebody downstream the supply chain is going to be enjoyed. And this is what we are trying, trying to bring back because we need the support of the farmer. We, us, Equino, without the farmer, we are not going to be successful because I really need those farmers that understands what we are trying to bring, the value that we are creating within the farm, downstream, not in the farm. The farm, you know, he will validate the yield and that's it. But once the farm will understand the value downstream, he will understand what it can be back to him uh, uh, and generating more revenue for the farmer. And no, and it's becoming essential right now. Yeah, makes sense. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Should we wrap it up, Jordan. I know everybody's got. Yeah, a I think uh, Matt's got a roll here soon, and uh, it's late where Gil's at. You guys just want to both just end it off, just tell us a little bit about your uh, premium programs, and we can wrap it up after that. I guess you can start yeah. it off, Matt. And we'll go over to Gil. Yeah, sure. Happy to. So, uh, you know, the the principal program, as you guys know, we've rolled out uh, this year is an evolution from the program we've run in the in the past. Um, plant for protein. And, uh, you know, we're really um, working hard to align incentives with the grower uh, to understand the data streams, to create a collaborative two-way, uh, you know, communication channel with, with our partner growers. Um, and then, you know, ultimately deliver, as has been said, uh, value from the end markets back. And, and that's working, you know, with a, with a great degree of scale and success so far. We've had really good engagement um, through harvest thus far from our farmer partners. Um, I'm, I'm eager to continue that journey. Uh, we've been out obviously not just, uh, uh, you know, sampling fields and uh, turning data back to, to our farmers uh, thus far in the last few weeks. Um, but, you know, at the same time talking about uh, this program and, and what it will lead to us uh, lead to in 2022, um, you know, for, you know, for material expansion of our soy production acreage. So um, BensonHillFarmers.com. Uh, it's my, it's my plug and I appreciate you guys helping, helping, helping send the message. Yeah. What are you guys offering, Matt? What, Matt, where do you see, what are some things you're going to offer in the future? Well, are you, are you, you know, what I'd tell you last year, you know, the big evolution from last year to this year um, and it's and it's not a fixed number, you know. It's dynamic depending on variety and location and yield expectations and so forth. But uh, what I'd tell you, the big evolution is is after we we spoke with farmers in our food system innovator program, the FSI program, which we announced this summer, and got a lot of really good feedback about what worked, what didn't work, and and where they um, may see opportunities with us to take more advantage for the value creation opportunity, specifically around protein density. 
And so the difference from last year where things were more fixed, you know, and in certain cases you'd have storage and transportation allowances and that kind of thing, where now we're looking at it and saying, look, we can actually create a degree of visibility to what the protein expectations are by variety, by field, et cetera. And we're pulling data off of the fields, validating, you know, a lot of that and turning it back to the farmer and saying, look, if we can employ this stack of practices, we'll pay further incentive on a fixed rate basis, but also create, you know, variable cost returns or variable premium returns, you know, to the farmer for the performance of the crop. Um, and that that's great because what we're doing is we're saying, look, we can, we're not just trying to make your production of this specific, this specific material in this specific field better. We're, we're contributing the data, anything and any, everything that we have about visibility on production capacity of those acres back to them. And through CropTrack, which is another one of the partnerships we announced this year, you know, we've got a modality where we can much more seamlessly, much more easily, you know, create a channel for these data sharing activities and ultimate, you know, premium conveyance back to the, you know, back to the farm. So, um, you know, the feedback, like I said, the feedback's been really positive so far. We've had, you know, had a great, um, a, gr a great amount of engagement. Um, but, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I know, I know you guys are, are going to, are going to help you know continue to 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 send that message, but I would I would offer that there's a material amount of additional upside from this year to next year and what we want to execute at, at an acreage level. Perfect, good deal. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, for us, we are spread from Canada to Texas, depending on the crops. Uh, sesame is already a mature program for us. We are already growing sesame in Oklahoma and uh, Texas uh, for more than three years. And uh, over there, uh, the expansions is really bringing an alternative for the farmers uh, uh, because sometimes cotton doesn't fit or they already uh, uh, block uh, from the sowing date. And, you know, it's all nothing or sesame. Therefore, over there, it's uh, going very well. Um, the second crop, uh, which we are launching, we are going to basically this year, it's going to be have, uh, we have only a small amount of acres in North Dakota and a few acres in Canada next year, P, because it's a very uh, slow crop in related to amount of seeds. Uh, we are going to have uh, commercial scales next year. And uh, the goal is to start uh, producing in North Dakota, moving towards Saskatchewan. And in the soy, uh, we are running this year in a pilot because we really need to make sure that we are understanding the quality of the grain, the, the yield, and also uh, uh, what is uh, the economic model behind it? Because at the end of the day, once we meet the farmer, we want to make sure that we can bring some value to the farmer in a way that it makes sense. Because otherwise, you know, it doesn't make sense that he will get uh, a penny uh, while he have to invest so much effort about uh, moving uh, from the commodities to an IP program. Uh, for the future, uh, I believe that uh, the farmer and the, and the, and the farm will take our stronger positions in dictating what kind of ingredients we are going to eat. Therefore, in Equino, we believe on diversity. Uh, so it's not going to be only soy or pea. It's going to be also other pulses, such as the uh, fava bean, cowpea, mung bean, and chickpea. And therefore, we are already, already working on those crops for more than four years. Uh, and one of the major reasons why we are spreading towards other uh, legumes is because 
we also have to uh, uh, work on the risks. So uh, cowpea and mung bean, you can grow in Oklahoma, and uh, fava bean you can grow in uh, North Dakota and, and Canada. So also you need to think about how you're using the climate change and the ability to really making sure that you can secure protein production globally. So it's not only about let's grow pea and soy, because if something will happen and temperature will go up, you need to make sure that you have maybe an alternative crop to overcome, for example, the soy. Maybe tomorrow the Midwest is going to be too warm to grow soy, so we will have such as cowpea or mung bean that are more tolerant to heat. So at the end of the day, we are looking at the entire uh, uh, structure and not looking only on a certain crop. Perfect. What, hey, Matt, I don't know if you guys have been following, but the oat market has exploded this year. You know, oats went up above six bucks, seven bucks. A bunch of my trader buddies, we were all laughing because we're like, who in the hell trades oats anymore? You know, we're like, you know, it used to just be for horse feed and everything else. But it's like with the consumer pushing to a better, higher quality grain with oat milk and all the different oat thing. I mean, you're just seeing Canada had some production problems, obviously, and so did uh, up in the in the northern parts of the U.S. But I mean, there's no oats. You just have a limited supply of oats right now and just massive demand. And, you know, like you guys are saying, I suspect that uh, could be the case with long beans and you know uh, the, the yellow peas and things as we move forward. I, I, I think, you know, supply is just going to outpace, uh, you know, I should say demand is going to outpace supply and look for huge opportunities there, like we've seen here uh, with oats being caught off guard. So good stuff. All good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully – Hopefully we'll see you guys uh, all in January at the event and farmers will uh, look to plant more acres of, of some of those seeds you guys have to offer. And I think it's a great opportunity for folks to uh, take some steps and I hope they reach out and call you guys and, and, and we can make some things happen. I, I look forward to hearing the progress. So thank you, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, yeah. thanks for having thanks us. You, all, all right. right. I appreciate you. it. Everybody Here's have that. a good week. Talk thank to you. Too. All right. And bye. Have a nice day. Thank you very much. You too. Thanks. Nice to meet you guys.